0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Good morning, and welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and today I want to talk a bit about megastructures and um, large-scale engineering on the stellar or interstellar scale and the implications that this has for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Because, as Enrico Fermi famously asked in 1950, he said, where is everybody? So, one very interesting idea that this brings up here is that part of what was implied in that question, part of what's implied in all the resolutions of the Fermi Paradox is, if uh, in fact extraterrestrial intelligence was out there in abundance and there were ancient and highly evolved civilizations, then the signs would be impossible to ignore. So this brings up the question, what are those signs? What could we expect to see from an advanced enough civilization? And that brings us to Nikolai Kardashev, who was a Soviet and Russian astrophysicist and a major contributor to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In 1964, he wrote an essay that was titled Transmission of Information by Extraterrestrial Civilizations. Now, the paper itself was all about Uh, what kind of transmission technologies, what kind of energy SETI researchers should be looking for. But what is really remembered about this paper? There's almost a side note in the paper, but he proposed a possible three-type scheme for classifying alien civilizations. And that became known as the Kardashev Scale. So there were three types of civilizations that he designated. He said that type 1 civilizations would be planetary, and they're the types that can use and store all the energy available on their planet. So that would include everything from you know, fossil fuels and basic uh, chemical power to solar and wind and nuclear and fusion and all of these available methods, really. That they had optimized the use of energy on their planet, all that was available to them. And a the Type two civilization was uh, defined as a stellar civilization. And that applied to civilizations that could use the all the energy of their entire star, their entire star system. So that would what that would look like. Basically they have colonized every planet in the system, or that they have even built an artificial structure to absorb every bit of energy from the sun. More on that in a bit. The third, type 3 civilizations were galactic in scale, and they are able to control the energy of an entire galaxy. So this from this scheme. There were a lot of very interesting thoughts on, well, what would that look like? What, How do we detect them? Carl Sagan, in his book, The Cosmic Connection, he wrote that in 1973, at the time of publication, he said that our present civilization was a type 0.7. And yeah, we have not yet achieved a type 1 level classification, but... What that would look like would most likely be yes, we have a huge band of satellites in orbit that are providing 24 7, 365 space space solar energy. We have countless solar arrays on planet Earth. We are harnessing the power of our tides, geothermal energy, wind, and fusion so that we have ascended what we're, what we're in right now, which is sort of a post-industrial scale, and we've become planetary and entirely renewable. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, a, very, that's a very good vision to have. As for a Type II civilization, one of the best and most coherent uh, descriptions came from Freeman Dyson, who came up with the concept of a Dyson Sphere. And yes, he wrote in his original proposal paper, he wrote exactly how we could look for that sort of thing. So that what he described was, yes, this sphere would be an artificial structure. It would be built to enclose our star and much of its planets, or possibly all. The smart money is to say, build it right in the circumsolar habitable zone, right? Right where Earth's orbit was, build it at that distance and... Once you've enclosed the entire star, you've now created habitable living space in the entire volume. People can live anywhere on the interior surface. They've got sunlight, they can simulate night, and yeah, they've got abundant, inexhaustible energy just raining down on them. Until, of course, the sun itself has reached the end of its life cycle billions of years later. As Dyson indicated, though, you could actually look for these megastructures in space by looking for the heat that they would radiate. Because inevitably, a Dyson sphere, all that energy it's absorbing, would have to radiate some of that heat outwards. So he said, look in places where there are signs of a gravitational disturbance, but no visible light. Look in the infrared. Look just for heat and you'll find it there, and that was, uh, he wrote that paper in 1960, so he did actually have a bit of a jump on Kardashev's paper. But, as is so often the case, these things just, you know, went together, linked up, and became part of our, all these wonderful theories about what could be out there. And so, a Type 3 civilization, that is probably the hardest to visualize there, but there are ideas that have been suggested over the years, it's like, well, if, if the civilization were that advanced... Perhaps it could build a structure to enclose its entire galaxy. Or maybe they would opt for a smaller structure that was at the heart of the galaxy, right? Because in, in the heart of every massive galaxy, you have a supermassive black hole, and it pumps out a tremendous amount of energy. So if you were to build a structure in that region there, you could, again, take advantage of all that energy. It would be massive in scale, and it would be able to accommodate uh, countless living beings. A couple takeaways there is that, yeah, any, any civilization like that, any structures like that would be impossible not to notice eventually, right? Initially, astronomers wouldn't even know what they were seeing if they were seeing it. But in time, just from a theoretical standpoint, they'd be able to say, our predictions match up with these observations. So we think it must be an alien civilization there. Now, over the years, what was so very interesting about the Kardashev scale was the way people were able to sort of revise it and expand it and, and look larger, and that was so very interesting because, of course, it's like, well, yeah, Kardashev's scheme was pretty general, and you, you notice that the scale of it, it leaps exponentially. Planet, star system, galaxy. It's like there's a lot of room in between there and there's also a lot of potential structures that one could imagine too. Rather than just a shell, which is extremely huge, and and engineers have actually looked at the, the material requirements, and they it's like, while something like that, yeah, is theoretically possible, the physics of it would work if you have the right technology and capability, but the amount of material, it's insane, right? You're not just using up your planets in the solar system to create a Dyson Sphere. You, you need other planets, and, and so many of them, and so many asteroids. So there were other ideas. One that, that came shortly thereafter was a Niven ring. Science fiction author Larry Niven, and he wrote a series on this called Ringworld, and it, that was followed by others who also proposed variations on that and on the Dyson Sphere. So there's this whole family of things known as Dyson Structures, So the ring itself is a single ring that reaches around the star. It's within its circumsolar habitable zone, but it's confined to one ring that would be several kilometers in diameter. And it creates this huge band that reaches uh, all around the sun, just out from uh, the equatorial region or or from pole to pole. And because of the... If it's also rotating, it imparts artificial gravity, which means that any atmosphere in there is held in place. And even just the, the thickness of the ring itself would probably be enough to generate uh, enough gravity to keep things anchored. So everything's sort of safe and steady. Going beyond that, there are, are other concepts that are just absolutely out there blow your mind. Uh, the Matryoshka brain, that is one that it has several several thinkers who've contributed to it. The one I'm most familiar with is from Charles Strauss. He was a science fiction writer, and the idea is you, you disassemble the planets, you turn them into not not a solid structure, but just a huge, huge, dense field of dust, and every grain of that dust is converted into a tiny computer, and they interact with all the other particles around it, forming a giant supercomputer. And it absorbs the heat from the sun, and it transfers it out from inner layers to outer layers. And each one of these layers is basically a massive computer running all kinds of simulations and maybe virtual realities. And the civilization itself. It's like if they've long since transcended, they have put their brains into this massive computer construct, and that's where they live. Yeah, Ray Bradbury had a similar idea called the Jupiter Brain, but it was basically on the size of a jupiter sized gas giant planet but yeah matryoshka brain is the is the truly scaled up version and it's even been suggested that this is why we're not hearing from advanced alien civilizations they're living they're living out this eternal existence around their stars where the energy is abundant and the bandwidth is good and why would they venture beyond it's like you get far enough away from the star the bandwidth sucks so stay close and yet another idea, oh, and this one I absolutely love, it's just really truly out there. It's called a Shkadov thruster, or a stellar engine. And the idea is similar to a Dyson sphere, except you build a roughly a, a half sphere around the star. It's a highly reflective material on the inside, and this device focuses the sun's solar energy out of the open side. And that that creates thrust because, yeah, the the solar radiation reflecting against this giant half-sphere, it pushes it away. That half-sphere draws the sun with it by force of gravity. And the solar wind there, which is being focused out the back, is pushing the whole thing onward. And so with this device, you'd be able to move a star. And for a civilization it's like if they were so inclined... They could live within this sphere and basically just travel onwards from star system to star system or galaxy to galaxy throughout their lives, throughout many, many, many generations over the course of thousands of years and eons. Yeah, they'd be on the move the whole time and they would be taking everything they needed with them. It is the single largest spaceship concept ever invented. If there were a way to move galaxies, and it's possible a super-advanced civilization would know how to do that, that would be the one thing greater than this. But this would be, certainly from our perspective, right, where we are as humans, it would be the ultimate act of engineering and, and transport, and it's something a Level 2 civilization could do. Other than that, you have many different variations there, some that are smaller in scale. It's like these are still huge structures and massive space stations, but they're not quite as as big as that. But they would still be very useful from a SETI standpoint because they would be hard not to notice. And a very popular one is the O'Neill Cylinder. And to give you an idea what that looks like, well, it's pretty simple. O'Neill described this in uh, his book in 1976 called The High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space, and he said if you have a cylinder that measures 32 kilometers long and 8 kilometers or 5 miles in diameter, and then you started rotating it, you imparted rotation, you just have to give it a kick and inertia would take care of the rest, it would just keep rotating, you speed it up to just about the right speed and it would simulate artificial gravity inside. And then you can build all of these biomes inside, right? You bring in grass, plants, uh, trees. You bring in all kinds of terrestrial organisms. And you create all these different types of biomes like we have on Earth, right? You have your arid regions, your semi-arid regions, your lush tropical regions, your deserts, your Arctic tundra. You have all these sort of spaced out so that they can like feed off of each other and, and help maintain each other. You do that just right and you have got a endlessly you've got a closed loop system that is bioregenerative it's endlessly sustainable as long as you take care of it right you know you allow uh, sunshine to enter through like, huge windows or or what have you and yeah you've got just abundant energy and space to to move and roam and live and these cylinders you could place them all over the solar system wherever there's stable gravity like the Lagrange points, and each one of them could house, well, at that size, a few million people, easy. In fact, this is uh, this is something Jeff Bezos has been flirting with. He wants to do this big time. Elon Musk is focused on going interplanetary and allowing humans to live on Mars and, and other planets in the solar system, whereas Bezos, he wants to do space structures, big, huge space stations, and allowing for millions of people to live like that. So, in Applying each and every one of these structures there, once again, going with the idea that, well, if we can think of it, then somebody else already has and somebody else probably already did it. It's like, yeah, all of these give us constraints or prerequisites, you know, certain things that we can itemize and say, yeah, so that structure would look like this and that this structure would look like that. And they would give off the following signs and so forth. And the funny thing is, fans of astronomy and, and astrophysics, they'll, they'll probably recognize this name right off the bat there. But in 2015, astronomers began to flirt with the idea that maybe we were seeing an example of a megastructure. And it was around a star uh, known as uh, KIC 8462552 or Tabby Star. And that was named after Tabitha Boyajian. In any case, uh, what they found was that this star was dimming periodically. Right, it was its light was increasing and dimming, and this is often used as a means of detecting exoplanets around a star, or large asteroids, debris disks, or whatever. The thing is, when it's a natural object, there are there are indications. It's pretty clear that what you're seeing is a natural phenomenon. Well, in the case of this one, it it defied conventional explanation. So. Again, nobody said, oh yeah, it's an alien megastructure. Nobody in the scientific community said that. But uh, they did say, well, it is a possibility. We can't rule it out yet, and we're going to try. That's our job as scientists. We're gonna try and find the most likely natural explanation to fit. And multiple studies were conducted, and that included one in 2018 by Professor Boyajian herself, and that appeared to settle the matter. They thought, yes, it, it could be a combination of things uh, that, that caused this. But um, I, I'm not actually certain that that really did settle the argument. Gave a satisfactory explanation, but it's like, well, there's still room for interpretation. And more than that, Tabitha star was not the only one to do that. It's, it's not the only star that has been shown to be dimming in a way that is not so periodic, not natural in appearance, and therefore there is still the possibility, not yet ruled out, that what we are seeing is uh, signs of civilizations. And until we rule it out, it's always it's fun to keep that just on the back burner. That's something I always hope we'll, uh, we'll be able to do, right? It's like, we can't say it's aliens, there's no proof that it is, it's just that we can't rule that possibility out, and I and I hope we don't. So and in the near future, we're going to get a chance to do a lot more up-close, detailed, and direct imaging studies thanks to James Webb, thanks to Nancy Grace Roman, thanks to the Extremely Large Telescope, the Giant Magellan Telescope, the 30-meter telescope, that will become operational in this decade. And James Webb is already... And yes, this, this does raise... A whole nother rich field, which I'm definitely going to jump on in one of the next podcasts I make here, which is one of the reasons why the whole Fermi's paradox and the Hart Tipler conjecture you know, there are no aliens because we're not hearing from them. One of the ways in which there is a big hole in that argument is for all we know, we could, we may be in possession of so much evidence that there is extraterrestrial intelligence out there, advanced. Possibly extinct, possibly still alive. We could have a ton of it, but we just don't know it. We don't recognize it as such. So, yes, it once again shows how limited we are in our assessment of what is out there and how limited our methods currently are. We are limited to not only our instruments, but what we can imagine. And what we can imagine is limited by our perspective. We just, we don't know what could be out there. Therefore, we're confined to guessing. And you know but we have made some wonderful guesses over time and the Kardashev scale is absolutely one of them. It stands among all these very uh, very timeless very honored concepts. And another thing that this brings me to and it's what I definitely want to cover next day is there is an extension of the Kardashev scale that says instead of thinking bigger, let's start thinking smaller and more optimized. Advanced aliens are not going to just get bigger and and glitzier and and harder to ignore. If anything, they're likely to get smaller scale, more sophisticated, and more optimal, uh, more optimized in terms of their use of space and, and the energy they can harness. And it's something I spoke about not long ago in a podcast with The Way, and it's known as the Transcension Hypothesis. So, but that, I'm going to say that for next time because it really is so very fascinating, and it also touches on how do you know what's out there if you don't even know what to look for. And if you're not looking for the right thing, you you will miss what is there. So that, yes, I'll say that for next day, and today I'll just say that when it comes right down to it, the most important tool we have when it comes to looking for life in the universe of the neuron is our imagination. And that that paradox, right? We don't know what to look for until we find it, we won't find it until we know what to look for. Yeah, it's like your imagination is the best weapon in this, and it really does, the more you go down that sort of rabbit hole of, well, what's possible if you're advanced enough? Oh, just about anything. So that, that could be out there. So until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and
0: this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels.